People in the transgender community face a number of health disparities, as well as stigma, discrimination, and lack of access to quality health care. Good morning. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. Today, I'm joined by Celia Fisher, director of the Center for Ethics Education at Fordham University. Today, I'm joined by Celia Fisher, director of the Center for Ethics Education at Fordham University and the Marie Ward Doty University Chair in Ethics. We discuss some of the health care challenges members of the transgender and gender nonconforming community face. We also discuss Fordham's project called Relay, Research and Education for LGBT and Allied Youth. Good morning. Let's start with the health care challenges in the trans community. How do they differ from those in other communities? Well, the trans community has very specific social and medical challenges. Most physicians are not trained in how to treat transgender youth or adults. When transgender individuals or gender nonconforming individuals come for treatment, most physicians do not ask about gender identity. Many transgender individuals are fearful of stigma and therefore may not broach what their gender identity issues are. And even physicians who wish to treat and help and provide adequate services to the trans community have mentioned that they really don't get any training. Now, Celia, can you break down for me uh, the definitions? What does transgender mean? What does gender nonconforming mean? Transgender means that a person's gender identity is not the gender they were assigned on their birth certificate. Many uh, transgender people feel imprisoned in the body that they were born into. They feel it does not match who they are. Um, but until they enter puberty or older, any kind of physiological or medical treatment cannot occur. Now, gender nonconforming is another way of looking at gender identity in which individuals feel that their gender identity is fluid and that it may move from male to female in different aspects, or they feel that their gender identity cannot be defined by a binary male-female categorization. So it's really not about a sexual attraction. You're not defining by a sexual attraction. It's more about who I feel I am and, and at what moment do I feel that I want to either choose the, the male to, to respect the male part of me or the female part of me. That is absolutely correct. And it gets to one of the larger social problems that the transgender and gender nonconforming population is facing. And that is they do not always identify with the LGB designation. And in fact, some of them feel segregated from LGB groups on campus. Why is that? Well, because the LGB population is not dealing with or addressing social problems or medical issues that have to do with gender identity. 
The LGB population, which also is an important population to defend for their rights uh, in terms of sexual orientation, the social barriers that these individuals face are in who their sexual partners are. That's very different than who I am as a male or a female or someone who does not define myself in either of those categories. And so a focus on sexual preferences in terms of attractions and uh, sexual orientation identity, when those are emphasized to the exclusion of gender identity, there may not be a common political or social focus for LGB and trans individuals. And uh, when I was researching, uh, Celia, the word gender dysphoria came up. What does that mean? Now, gender dysphoria as a medical definition, and, and actually it's a psychiatric definition, has an evolving history. So as with uh, sexual orientation minorities, transgender minorities were looked at as, years ago, psychiatrically deviant. And so gender dysphoria at that time was used to say there's a mental health problem in terms of feeling that you are not the gender that you were identified as your birth certificate. However, the American Psychiatric Association and the American Psychological Association has moved uh, now to understand that gender identity differences are a normative part of individual development, and that gender dysphoria is the despair that somebody feels when their gender identity does not match their body or the uh, gender they were assigned on their birth certificate. Another interesting aspect of the diagnostic term gender dysphoria is that an individual cannot get medical treatment, hormone treatment, or uh, sexual reassignment surgery unless they have a psychiatric diagnosis. And so that diagnosis becomes important simply to allow someone to get the medical treatment that they need. So in order to get medical treatment, they have to be diagnosed with what is seen as a medical condition or a mental condition? A mental condition, but fortunately now that mental condition is depression or dysphoria about not having the body to which you identify with. So recently, the World Health Organization declassified transgender identity as a mental disorder, as we were talking. So how will this uh, either benefit the community or hinder the trans community? This is a, a this is great progress because it means that if you are transgender, you are not mentally deviant. You are not psychiatrically disturbed. You don't have a mental disorder. Rather, you have a medical need to obtain the body to which you identify with. So it becomes easier for the person to be able to get this help. Is that true, Celia? Absolutely. And now they don't have to necessarily define themselves as having some kind of mental Issue. Exactly. And it moves the social recognition that this is not a mental deviation, that this is one of the normative aspects of gender development that young children, adolescents and older adults go through. Celia, have they renamed it? No, no, they have not, not yet. They just sort of changed the definition. Exactly. Do you think eventually it can be renamed to something that doesn't have this the mental attachment to it? Would that benefit the trans community? 
I think it would benefit not to have a negative connotation. At the same time, there are many transgender people who are depressed and upset because they feel trapped in their body. Um, and so, you know, you wouldn't want to eliminate that term for people who need the support. Now, earlier, uh, Celia, you said that the um, transition usually begins in teen years. What are the pros and cons with tackling things like hormone replacement when your body is still growing and you're still sort of just getting to know right. who you are from a hormonal point of view. Absolutely. For those young individuals who are clear about their gender identity and the transition that they want to go into, uh, medically, one of the things that is recommended is puberty blocking hormones as they enter puberty. Because Hormone replacement therapy, sexual reassignment therapy is more difficult if you've progressed through puberty in the gender that you do not feel is your gender identity. It provides them also with a period to begin to understand and to coalesce around their transgender identity. There are some youth who eventually who identify as transgender, but as they move into puberty, identify as a sexual orientation minority and not a transgender minority. So you want to make sure for some of those youth that there's a period of time that they can figure out now that they're adolescents what that definition means. Because of course, for any child, it's difficult to understand what those distinctions are. Uh, so Hormone replacement therapy typically doesn't start until somewhere mid or late adolescence, or as you're aware, for some people in their 20s, 30s, or even even later. Now, break it down for me, Celia. If I am a adolescent boy, but I, I identify with being a woman, what would the hormones do physically to me? If your birth certificate assigned you a male body and your identity is female, then the hormones that you would take would begin to decrease facial hair. It would decrease the effect of testosterone on your body. It would increase breast development. It would provide a softer, more female-like biological characteristic. And for those who were born into a female body, the hormones would increase the testosterone. So there would be facial hair. There might be a decrease in uh, breast development, uh, depending on w what age the, the hormones began. Speaking from a psychologist's point of view, we know children can change their minds about things. What happens if that happens? So let me point out that none of this will happen until mid to late teens. The definition of sexual orientation or gender identity is not very clear to, to children. So there's, there's a gut feeling. But in terms of the cognitions needed to identify what is meant in society and the, the appropriate terminology is very difficult. You're not going to have children that are treated with these kinds of hormones. So, so we're really not talking until mid or late adolescence for, gotcha. for most of these kids. Moving forward, Celia, we were talking earlier and you said that there are people trained for this, but also in the medical profession, there still needs to be some training done. So are healthcare professionals really equipped to tackle the specific healthcare challenges facing the trans community right now? 
No, there you know there's a, a handful of individual doctors who are specialists in transgender issues, but the vast majority of general practitioners and of other specialists have absolutely no training in transgender issues. Let me give you an example: uh, a, a individual who was born into a female body who even goes through transition to male still has some organs that uh, need gynecological services. Or if, if they've not had uh, sexual reassignment sur surgery and they're on hormone replacement, it, there's still unknown issues. What happens um, during menstruation when you're on hormones that are uh, giving you extra testosterone? In addition, um, many transgender Males, and that's uh, people who were assigned at birth as female and, and uh, tra transitioned to, to men, are very embarrassed sitting in gynecologist offices in which there's not preparation to be helping them if they're moving through their transition. So there are many challenges. In addition, there is some research that suggests that because of the stigma that occurs in clinics and hospitals and doctor's office, the many transgender adults don't go for regular checkups because the people that specialize in transgender issues are not general practitioners, they're not oncologists, they're not internists, and so the stigma that it involved delays a lot of treatment so that some chronic illnesses can uh, rapidly uh, become incredibly acute for transgender people who do not go to the doctor. In addition, some transgender adults uh, report that when they are with the doctor, they're teaching them about some of the transgender medical issues. And I would assume that even having the proper vocabulary would be important uh, so I can understand what my needs are and you as the doctor would be able to explain to me uh, in terms that I understand, that you understand, and make sure that we're on the same page. So what needs to be done when the in the healthcare There's increasing industry? recommendations that medical schools and clinical psychology training programs, mental health programs begin to include as part of their training transgender and LGB issues and that it becomes a requirement of accreditation for those training programs. And Celia, are there any small things that might be able to be done in a doctor's office that can make uh, a transgender patient feel more comfortable just in the environment? You know, I think most of us uh, who go to general practitioners or to other kinds of doctors who see pamphlets on the issues that we're most concerned about always feel, oh, this is great. You know, this doctor is concerned about something I am worried about. Somebody gets me. Somebody gets me. All of us feel that way. And so if transgender kinds of pamphlets or other kinds of materials are regularly incorporated into doctor's offices, that will have a gender-affirming and destigmatizing effect on individuals who come in. In your opinion, would most uh, transgender individuals go to doctors by word of mouth or would it be so you I, uh, if someone needs a, a doctor, then you would go to another friend who might be transgender who would get you to a doctor who's sensitive to the issues? Or is that kind of hard? to Well, find? that is well, well, what's hard to find necessarily is a group of uh, peers who are transgender. My research focuses on adolescents, 14 to 21-year-old young adults, and many of them do not have 
any other peer that they know uh, that is going through what they're going through. They rely on the Internet to identify with popular figures, to engage in some organizations that are helpful online to both LGB and transgender communities. In our research, which is supported by the National Institute of Minority Health Disparities, uh, we find that a lot of adolescents are afraid to talk about their transgender issues because they fear the doctor will tell their parents. And unfortunately, there is a history of a certain percentage of LGBT youth, all uh, sexual orientation and gender minority youth, that parents may be punitive when they learn about their uh, sexual or gender minority uh, status. Uh, some kids end up hopeless, homeless. Uh, even parents that have been told and, and accept the child may not be accepting of all aspects of it. So youth in particular have difficulty broaching these subjects to, to physicians. So I think you raised a really important point in that there's this notion based on popular media that transgender people have other groups of people that they're talking to and they're, you know, they're a community. But for many of them, that's not the case at all. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon, talking with Celia Fisher, the director of the Center for Ethics Education at Fordham University. We're discussing the various health disparities the transgender community faces, like stigma, discrimination, and a lack of access to quality health care. Now, Celia, um, we know you've worked, as you said, with, with adolescents, um, and you also established Fordham's Center for Ethics Education, which in turn created the Relay Program. So tell me about this program. The Relay was started as a Facebook page to give back to LGBTQ youth who participate in our studies and those who do not to provide updated news on issues that are important to both the transgender and LGB community, especially to youth. We post news every day in terms of what's out there. We post news about research that's being done. We have blogs that are put on the Relay website that attempt to communicate what's going on in a language that the, the general populace can understand. And we constantly post wonderful resources in this country that people can call into or perhaps find in their local communities for so you, support. So you're trying to answer that call that we talked about earlier that individuals will have a place to come and to commune. Exactly. So what are some of the articles? Some of the issues that we have discussed on Relay are the wonderful news about Megan's Law. Megan's Law was based on a, a young transgender female whose parents took her to a mental health professional who performed conversion therapy. Now, conversion therapy is a unvalidated, ineffective method that attempts to convert someone who has a transgender identity. So the law states that conversion therapy is not a legal practice. So, for example, in New York State, any conversion therapy will now not be covered by Medicaid, Medicare, or 
any state-supported medical services. But mostly, we want to show the supports that are given, advances or successes that LGBTQ youth have had. And so um, we're, we're always uh, peppering with, uh, you know, wonderful news on successes and, and uh, as well as alerting them to important political or scientific progress. So, Celia, is there one issue that affects the trans community that really should be at the forefront or at least should get a little bit more recognition, in your opinion? The most important point that is not getting across is that just like sexual orientation variation, gender variation is a normal part of being human and that they are not that that we have to begin to look at the variability in people's understanding of their own identity in terms of their own sexual orientation as just part of the larger variability of what it means to be human and stop thinking that these are segregated or unique or distinct from what's normal in being human. Celia, are you working on any any research now moving forward? We're focusing right now on the use of PrEP to prevent the acquisition of HIV if you are having sex with someone who's HIV infected. We are most interested in transgender youth and LGB youth in terms of being able to adhere to PrEP on an everyday pill basis. Now help me understand, what exactly does it do? PrEP uh, creates a defense in the body against the HIV uh, virus. And how is HIV prevention for the trans community different than for maybe the LGB community or or is it? No, HIV prevention is not different in the trans community. The, the populations that are most at risk for HIV within the LGBT community are um, gay men or men who have sex with men and uh, transgender females who have sex with men. Why? Well, because that form of sex is highly risky for HIV transmission. So PrEP is a wonderful innovation that can help protect youth. Now, the problem is that because many youth do not want their parents to know that they're transitioning about their transgender identity or that they're LGB, they do not want to participate in studies that can demonstrate whether or not PrEP is good for them in terms of adherence and other medical issues because they don't want to get guardian permission. And although in many states, um, and according to federal regulations for research, youth have the right for to medical services without their guardian's permission for sexual health services, uh, many institutional review boards are reluctant to waive the guardian permission requirement. And so you have many LGBTQ youth out there who are not being treated with any evidence-based type of PrEP treatment. And so we're very interested in understanding what transgender and LGBT youths 
attitudes are toward PrEP? Do they think the pill is something that they could adhere to? What we found in some of our previous research is that some of them are afraid that if their parents see them taking the pill, that they'll be outed. So new on the horizon are what's called injectables, um, that you can receive an injection by a doctor of PrEP that can be effective every three months. And so right now we're beginning a study with LGB and transgender uh, youth who are at high sexual risk for HIV to begin to understand what their attitudes are toward not only participation in research that could compare how they're reacting to either the pill or the injectable, but what their attitudes are in terms of the risks and benefits of both those procedures. Because the pill would be taken daily almost like a vitamin. Exactly, exactly. At the same time, some people don't like to get an injection. Right. Uh, you know, that preferences should be honored. In addition, uh, both require that you see a doctor every three months because PrEP doesn't work if you have HIV. <laughs> so you have to be tested for HIV to make sure that you're HIV negative. And because we're a center for ethics education, one of our big concerns is when you're in a research study, you're given PrEP for free. And so one of the issues we're exploring is what are their attitudes toward being in a research study for a year where they're getting this medication and then there's nothing available to them? Because the National Institute of Health does not fund any kind of treatment services following your participation in research. So we're looking at what their attitudes are, the extent to which researchers uh, should be obligated to provide some kind of reference and, and resource that youth need to be aware right at the beginning that this lasts only for a year and, you know, so that they can discuss what those consequences are. And what their options might be once they stop taking it. Exactly. Another important issue about PrEP is that it doesn't protect against STIs, other sexually transmitted infections. And so we're very interested in youth's attitude toward whether or not they will continue to use condoms and other safe sexual health, safer sex protections if they are using PrEP. And so all the research studies that are being conducted always include counseling on the importance of using condoms. Another issue that's that's incredibly important for LGBT youth who uh, have sex with male partners is that what we find in most populations is that use of condoms in many instances are dependent upon the more dominant male attitude. And so if you have a male partner who refuses or threatens you because they don't want to uh, use a condom, then PrEP may be a way not to be beholden to a partner in terms of protection for HIV. So we're also looking at youth attitudes toward that aspect of PrEP research. It seems also, Celia, that communication is so key here. As you were saying earlier, you might not have the right language in medical professions. You might not have peers. What's being addressed communication-wise for That for is such a great point. In our research, we have run groups of transgender youth, 
asking them, how do they want to be spoken to? How can we change both medical care and research, which may seem very insulting to a trans youth, especially since we're only, even when we're looking at sexual and gender minorities, we're so used to sexual orientation language that may be alien to a transgender youth. And so one of the things they've told us and that we've implemented into our own research is start with asking me what my pronoun is. Do I want to be called a he? Do I want to be called a she? Who am I? Some gender nonconforming youth uh, want to have the pronoun they to express their fluidity or lack of a bi-gender definition. They want more language that isn't, are you gay? Are you bisexual? Are you lesbian? But rather, who do you have attractions to? Who do you have sex with? Who are your sex partners? The use of some terms for genitals that we're so used to. For some youth may be upsetting. If you talk to a transgender male, uh, the use of the term vagina may be upsetting, even if they haven't surgically transitioned yet, because that's related to a female identity, and they have a male identity, and they may prefer terms like front. So it's, you know, we're learning a lot. We're trying to put it into our research, and we're trying to get it out there so that other researchers and other medical practitioners can begin to have more gender-affirming language in their everyday interactions with youth. Do you have a website where people can go and get more information? Well, the Relay website is very helpful. We also have a website for the Center for Ethics Education in which we have a site that describes all of the research that we've been doing as well as articles that are relevant to that research. We at Fordham, my ethics center also runs an HIV and drug abuse prevention research ethics institute uh, where we train other young professionals who are public health professionals, physicians, Uh, psychologists, psychiatrists, how to do research on the ethics of actually interacting with all vulnerable populations for HIV and drug abuse. And so we have a large website with a lot of resources there as well. So Celia, I want to thank you so much for joining me this morning and and sharing all your information and knowledge. Thank you. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. You can friend Fordham Conversations on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter and catch up on our shows that you've missed with our weekly podcast. For WFUV's Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.